Let's pray and then we will look into Mark chapter 12, uh, verse 28 through 34. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to gather. We thank you that you raise up men to proclaim your word, whether that is to youth ministries or in the pulpit or Bible studies or whatever it may be, Lord, we thank you that you always give your church teachers. You start it with prophets and and then apostles and, and evangelists, and you've given the church pastors and teachers to care for the souls of your children. And Lord, it isn't just us saying what we think. We have the blessed opportunity to preach the word of God. We listen to the word. It's what changes our lives. It's what saves sinners. It's what helps uh, saved people grow in the glory in, uh, of Jesus Christ and in his person, Lord. So we pray that today you would do that as well, Lord. Father, we still know we have many that are sick and out and many probably watching even as we speak here. Some headed for procedures and uh, surgeries this week, Lord. We pray that you as the great physician would you have your hand upon them, heal them, return them to our church, Lord, so we could fellowship together in person. But we pray you would strengthen them as they go through these trials, Lord. Father, we thank you for our missionaries. We pray and for them often. We remember them. We support them, not just financially, Lord, but we stand with them with the message that they preach in a different culture, in a different place, somewhere they have been called. And we hold the rope, Lord, as they go and do those great ministries of teaching people to observe the word of God, the truth, and making disciples, Lord. What a blessing to be a part of that ministry. So, Lord, please be with our missionaries today, Lord. Pray for our country. Lord, we have strayed quite a way from what we laid down in the beginning. And our sin is uh, evident. And so we pray that you would strengthen the church, Lord. It is the church that would lead this nation back. It is, it is our responsibility to stand for truth, Lord. What the Bible says from everything from marriage to life and certainly the clarity of the gospel, Lord. So strengthen your church in these times of change in our country, Lord. We are grateful for your love for us. Help us as we study a passage on loving our Lord with all of our being. Lord, show us our weaknesses. Strengthen us, Lord, by the work of your spirit and your word to be better lovers of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is quite a passage of scripture as Jesus is wrapping up his challenges from these, uh, from these religious leaders. But when we think about Mark chapter 12, as Corey read that to us, verse 28 through 34, it speaks of a loving God with our whole being. And, and really, when you think about that, the love, loving God is the foundation of Christian life. We would never share the gospel with you and invite you to be a part of this church without leading you to loving God more. This is what we do. We love our God. And yet, right, we have these struggles, don't we? And the world pulls on our hearts and we go through difficulties. But this is the, the fundamental, foundational teaching of Christianity. We love God. We love him. And loving God defines a true believer. In fact, loving God for the true believer begins, I want you to think about this, begins with an imperfect love, doesn't it? Oh, I studied this passage all week, kicked me all around the office and, you know, just, oh my goodness, love him with your entire being. So our love is an imperfect love right now, isn't it? Does anybody want to stand up and say, I love God perfectly? 
because you could should come up here and talk, not me. <laughs> we all would say, oh, Lord, this is a monster of a command, isn't it? To love God with all of our being. And yet, we begin, God graciously allows us to love imperfectly in this life. But the climax comes as we step into glory and we now love perfectly. We're going to be, we're going to be people who can love perfectly. I think that helps you understand the last passage that we talked on last week, which was such an important text um, of understanding basically that there is a resurrection, but in it he gives us some understanding of marriage. Our love would be so great, we don't need what he gave us on this earth. It would be well surpassed that. So, the fundamental basis of a believer is, is he and she, he or she loves, even though it is imperfect now, it'll have a climax in heaven with perfect love. Now, loving God is a universal command given to all of his creation as an act of worship. So, true Christians love God. We love God. Well, you can say, well, why? Well, without it, we're dead, <laughs> right? We're not forgiven. If God does not love us and know us from the foundations of the world, if he doesn't care for us in this way, we, we perish eternally. So, so this foundational to us, he's forgiven us of our sins. Who can do that but God? So, so it arouses love within us. He's graced us. In life, he's given us daily what we need. He sustains us. Oh, he loves us, doesn't he? And so it provokes love within us. But, think about this. Most people will be disobedient to this command that we're going to study here today. And they'll suffer eternal punishment in hell because they don't love God. Most people. And we can see this down through time, right? Anytime God shows his judgment hand upon the world, it is only a remnant that he brings out. He says, many are called, few are chosen. Why is it this place just packed and overflowing with the 30, 40,000 people that live in the Ormond area? It's, it's just God doesn't save everyone. He, he leaves some to their own, their own inclinations, and some he draws out of that. But those that he does, we love him. So the, so the Bible's clear, not all will go to heaven. Not all people love God. And I think that's a reality. And, and, and it's hard to say, but hell's gonna be filled with people who refuse to love God the way the Bible says. Today, everybody has a view of God, right? Well, I, I love God in my own way. I, I don't need the Bible nor the church to tell me how to love God and what God requires of me. I've made up my own rules. Well, that'll land you in hell fast. What a dangerous thing for fallen man to try to come up with his own way to love God and get himself to heaven. That is such a dangerous plan. <laughs> and yet God has given us his word, this perfect, infallible, sufficient word of God, authoritative in our life to show us how to love him, how to walk with him. And though it is an imperfect love, it is a love. I, I trust that you're a believer today. If you're a believer today, you can say, Scott, I, I do love God. It, it's troublesome at times because my sin and self messes with it at times, but I do love him. I trust you if you're a believer, you can say that. And you have not defiantly said, God, I'll love you the way I want to love you. You just accept what I tell you to accept. That's a person that will find himself or herself in hell. Look at 1 John chapter uh, 5. 
Jason read as he opened this uh, service today several passages from 1 John, and, and I want you to understand this command is not just for uh, the Jews, not just in Jesus' day before the cross. This command is just all throughout the scriptures, particularly the New Testament. 1 John chapter 5, 1 and 2, the beginning of this passage, we could have chose many a passages to examine this. But here he's showing us, and I love this, these type of verses because they display who's in the faith and who isn't. Who belongs to God and who isn't? Notice he says, whoever. A lot of people like to fight about whoever's. God doesn't have a question of whoever. You know that, don't, right? People say, well, what about the whoever's? Do you think God doesn't know who the whoever's are? <laughs> it's whoever. It doesn't matter your, your background, your ethnic diversity, your, your economic status. He, he, the whoever's are that he pulls people from all walks of life, right? But here's a defining term, isn't it? Notice, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now what a statement here of salvation. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, equal with the Father, right to everything that God has. It's such a statement that he is the Christ. Oh, friends, whoever believes that God, that the Lord Jesus Christ shares with God the essence of glory that is the deity in the realm of God, this is a child of God, he says. So do you have to believe that Jesus is God? And you don't believe he's God. How can he ever save you? How could he ever forgive you of your sins? How could he ever take that payment? So here he separates people um, from those who believe that Jesus is some kind of prophet or, or he was born in some way outside of his deity. Here it's setting the record straight. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah. He is God. And then it says, whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. Now this is right along with our passage. The two great commandments, love God with your entire being and love your neighbor as yourself. So here it says, one is, I know I'm a believer because I believe Jesus is God. I believe he's the Messiah. I believe he's equal with the Father. And I believe he was sent from the Father to save me. And so that tells me that I'm born of God. And then the second, whoever loves the Father, well, I love God, loves the child born of him. Woo. We love one another. We love one another. Boy, there's lots of Christians in this world that say, I love God, but I don't love Christians. In fact, if I was to be honest, I'd tell you that I hate certain Christians. That's a very dangerous statement. See, one of the aspects of our salvation teaches us that we love God, we understand that Christ is God, that he saves us, and he saved a group of people called his bride, the church, and we love them. Whoever loves the Father, it's just a statement, isn't it? Loves the child born of him. So we love one another. Look at verse two. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. So love God, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor, love God. Love God, obey and observe his commandments. Obey and observe his commandments because you love God. Love your neighbor and obey, obey and observe his commandments because you love your neighbor. Notice how he's putting that all together. That's the mark of a Christian. We love God. We love our neighbor. That's who's ever close to you is the idea of the, the Greek word there. Those close to you, certainly in the position of the church. And we observe his commandments. Love one another. Love your wife. 
Raise children toward and point them towards Christ. There's just tons of commandments within the New Testament that we hold to, right? And we believe. Now, as you make your way back to Mark, I want you to think about this. None of this is done without the dwelling and dwelling work of the Spirit. Because we're talking about massive stuff here, aren't we? You know, do you know who my neighbor is, Scott? Apparently you haven't seen him or her. <laughs> I mean, closest one to you might be your spouse. And yet, unfortunately, the divorce rate within the church is escalating constantly. Well, I'm a Christian. Wait a minute. What's the Bible say? Love your neighbor. Love the close one too. If you love God, you love them. So, so look, none of this is accomplished with, not accomplished without the indwelling work of the Spirit. You and I come to this passage, and, I, and as I begin to study, I go, oh, God, I can't do this. This has got to be a work of you within me to love this way. And so this is done by this indwelling work of the Spirit who helps us in this imperfect love that we have, and he helps us love our God and with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and love that one close to us. And, and listen, 1 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 say, this is the love of God that compels us to stop living for ourselves, verse 15, and start living for the one who dies for us. That's the mark of a Christian. That's a mark of a Christian. And though these are difficult, and I, and I want to reiterate this because this these are powerful commands that are given here by Jesus and he's saying they're the greatest. I want to reiterate, you cannot, I cannot do this on our own. Because look, I'm hard to love. But Christ commands you to love me because you love God. And it can be done through the strength of the Spirit. Now, let's jump into our text here and figure out what's going on here. Now, the confrontations uh, that's happening in today's text has been preceded by three previous planned attacks, right? So this all took place on Wednesday before the crucifixion. Remember, we're working our way to the cross. Jesus is dead set on going to that cross. Satan and all of his forces are trying to stop him, trying to dethrone him. Everybody's trying to stop him. Christ knows where he's going. So this all takes place on Wednesday before his crucifixion on Friday. Monday, remember, he came into Jerusalem, this triumphal parade. He enters in, he has this parade, they all hosanna, hosanna to him. He goes, takes a peek what's happening in the temple. Oh, not what God planned for the temple. Goes back out, Tuesday returns, cleanses the temple. And there he's questioned by what authority he has to do that. He comes back in Wednesday and he begins to go back to the temple and he begins to teach the people. And this is where these planned attacks start to happen. The first came by this select group of the Sanhedrin. You see this in chapter 11, verse 27. And they say, by what authority are you doing this? They challenge his authority there, and he defends himself brilliantly, and they go away speechless. The second group, which is the Pharisees and Herodians, two groups that hated each other but hated Christ more, they question him and say, is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? And of course, the Lord Jesus defends his position perfectly, and they go away without being able to speak against him. Then comes the third group, and this is what we looked at last week. These were the Sadducees. They rejected the resurrection. So they were trying to use a marriage issue to try to prove that there was no resurrection. And so they said, Who, what, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? What they did not believe, and Jesus handled that masterfully. And they go away speechless. Remember, their goal is to discredit him in front of the people. They do not want the people following him, and they want Rome against him. 
And that's their goals. So now, each attempt has failed and is absolutely backfired on them. We come to the fourth and the last in this text today. And this next group seems to be falling apart before they even get to uh, challenge him. And Jesus is going to use this last question to expose that religious leaders and many people do not love God. They love themselves. Now, there's one man in this that may be the exception. And so as we work through this, we're going to look at four thoughts here this morning. Here's some things I want you to think about. Do I believe in the greatest command? Is it the greatest? You have to ask yourself, is this the greatest command? Is this great command progressing in my life? And notice the the terms I chose to use there. Is this greatest command, if I believe it's the greatest command, and if so, is this great command progressing in my life? Meaning, do I love God now more than before? Is there a steady progression of loving God and dying to self? We have to ask ourselves as we go through this. And then, is the love of God compelling our love for others? It's it's, it's a very good uh, telltale sign in our life. Do I love my neighbor? That person close to me. Whatever that is, where you live, where you work, where you worship, those things. Do I love them? And then finally, we're going to realize that the kingdom has a very, very narrow gate. And very few find it. And we'll look at that together. Now, number one. One, speak the truth even when it seems no one is listening. Speak the truth even when it seems no one is listening. Now, this is hard to do, isn't it? I've, I've spoken in some places through the years. God's given me some opportunities to go preach in places that theologically did not align with what I taught. And, but for some reason, God opened doors, allowed opportunities for me to go speak. And, and, and while you're speaking, people are making faces at you, and they're mad at you, and they're shaking their head and wagging their finger, and you just, whoo, hard to do. But you know what's even harder than that? Loved ones who don't believe the truth of God's word. It's very difficult, isn't it? You have a loved one who you love dearly, maybe a siblings or children or, or parents or whatever the case may be who are, who are not walking with God or rejected the things of God. It's very, very difficult to speak the truth to them, isn't it? They know your problems and they'll freely bring them up, right? Oh, well, it's fine for you to say that, but I saw you, you know, on and on, right? It's hard, isn't it? Jesus is such a great model. Of course, he doesn't have any problems. <laughs> he doesn't have any sin, although they think he does. He speaks in difficult situations. And I find a lot of comfort studying him in this. And of course, he knows the hearts of all people. But we are told here, proclaim the truth. The word of God tells Timothy in a very difficult situation, preach the word in season and out of season. Listen, you have to pray for your pastors. All kinds of pressures on us always. Always somebody got a hand in your back pushing you one direction or another. You should do this and you should do that. And compromise is always at the foot of a pastor all the time. We keep going back. I I got nothing on my own for you. (laughs) That's why we preach the Bible verse by verse here. It's very important to us. We think that's what God wants preachers to do. Preach the Bible verse by verse. Because he tells us what to say in these difficult situations. So we work our way through this. Now, as we get to this, we find Jesus with this scribe. Now, it's only recorded here in Mark and in Matthew chapter 22, 34 through 40. Um, This one that Luke did not choose um, was not uh, 
led to put this in his recording. Now, scribes, we have to understand what scribes are, just real quickly. Scribes were groups, so we've had Pharisees, we've had Sadducees, we've had Herodians, we've had people from the Sanhedrin. Now we're down to scribes. So scribes were a group within the Pharisee, Pharisee system, right? So there's, there's all these Pharisees. Within that, there was a group, and they're often called lawyers. Matthew refers to them as a lawyer. Now, if you're like me, we think a lawyer, okay, I, I have a certain view of lawyer, right? No, 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 no. That's not what this is talking about. Lawyer, lawyer, they were within the Pharisee system that they studied and interpreted the law within them. So scribes were Pharisees, but they were within that Pharisaical system that were there. Now, I believe the plan was for the scribes to collectively, maybe several of them, to take the next shot at Jesus here. But Jesus had systematically taken apart the arguments of the last three groups, right? And so they're arguing among themselves. Look at verse 28 with me. And one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognized that he had answered them well. Now put those two thems together. It's not Jesus that's arguing. They're arguing. They just got their, their tail ends handed to them with their poor arguments, with their poor theology. And they're arguing. You know, you could, you could hear what was going on. Well, you shouldn't have went to that. You shouldn't have said that. I would have said this. And they're arguing because Jesus just showed them up. And this scribe, he's looking on and he goes, wow, it seems these men have been beat. And so this one scribe, he's listening to Jesus. Notice the verse says this, recognizing that he had answered them well. He recognized Jesus' answers. And look, brothers and sisters, truth is hard to fight. Though people always will do it, it's hard to fight. And this scribal lawyer, he's wrestling with several things as he's listening, right? One, he's watching and he's listening to the argument of his own party, right? They're, they're after power and authority, and they hate Jesus. He knows they hate Jesus, and they want to kill him. But maybe, maybe something strikes him of their hypocrisy. Maybe as Jesus is, is defending himself with the word of God, with the commandments of God, he's realizing, well, the Bible says thou shalt not kill, and this group I'm with, it wants to kill Jesus. It's possible some of this is going through his mind. Maybe, maybe he saw a glimpse of this insatiable appetite for authority and power that had blinded this group he was with. Or maybe he saw something so different in Jesus that separated him uh, dramatically from these power-hungry religious leaders. Secondly, what was God truly pleased with what was on his mind? You know, he sees these guys arguing. They're arguing over theology and resurrection and no resurrection and, and, and how we can trap Jesus and so forth and all that's going on. And, he, and maybe he's sitting there, I wonder if God is pleased with this. And then maybe the next question that comes to his mind is, well, what then is God pleased with? What, what is God pleased with? And so I think this is maybe what leads to this question. Uh, we don't know if he was selected from the Pharisees to ask this pre-planned question, or he did this on his own. Matthew tells us that he was there to test Jesus, but certainly he probably Think about this. He probably applauded Jesus' answer to the, to the Sadducees as he defeated them on their view of the resurrection. And so he was like, wow, that's what I believe. I believe there is a resurrection. 
And I believe that there's no marriage in heaven because there is, there is a greater, there's a greater kingdom, a greater love that su- surpasses every, everything that God would put on this earth for our comfort here. So maybe this drove him to ask these questions. But again, it seems he's listening. He's listening to both Jesus and his religious leaders. And it's possible he had an open mind to Jesus, at least to want to know his answer. Personally to him, it seems he's pleased with what he heard. It's pleased. He recognizes, I love this little phrase, he recognizes that he had answered them well. It was a good answer. It was a biblical answer. And so he comes, this scribe comes forward with what seems to be his own question. There's no trickery in it. It's plain and straightforward. That's so much different than the other three. The other three are there to trick, to deceive, not this man. This seems to be a plain, straightforward, seeking the truth question. And I think this is often the results of God drawing someone. When we deal with people who God is drawing to the faith, you can see they're coming with a desire. They want to know something. They've discovered they have sin in their life and they don't know how to deal with it. And so they may ask real honest questions that may be questioning. Don't ever be afraid of somebody to question you. But you can certainly tell the difference between someone who's questioning and someone who's using questions to mock your faith. That's very clear. And I think this, this scribal lawyer here, he's, he's coming with a question to Jesus. Now, what is the question? Well, notice it at the end of 28. What commandment is the foremost of all? The Greek reads this way, what commandment is first of everything? If you were just to bring it across woodenly and translate it, what commandment is first of everything? So he has this desire to know what commandment Jesus believes has the highest rank. What's the most important thing that the Bible has to say as far as commandments? And Jesus' answer will tell him a great deal. It'll help him know the truth. Now, Religious leaders held that the commandments were binding to each other. But even they, even they, they attempted to formulate certain commandments that would help you fulfill the rest. But like selfish and godless men, they argued over the heaviness of certain commands and the ease of others and which one was which. And so this was a question. This was a legitimate question that this scribe would have had. Which is the greatest? Now, the rabbis had, I want you to hear this, 613 commands they had identified in the Old Testament. 613 commands given in the Old Testament, and they're there. These are not counting their traditions, which they added a tradition for every day of the week, so there's another 365 on top of that. No wonder Jesus says, take my yoke, it's light, right? So they're trying to figure out what is the command that links all these together. Within those 613 commands, they identified that 365 had negative to, was a negative command, meaning don't do this, don't do that, right? Don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't, the don'ts, right? Then there was 248 positive ones. So there's commands where you're to love the Lord with all your heart. Those are positive commands, right? But their comparative importance was of much debate, right? Meaning they, they, they wanted to know which was the greatest and which one would impact the whole. So that's why this question gets asked here. So this scribe, he comes with his mind made up. He thinks he knows what the command that holds all these together and he wants to see if Jesus is on the same page. He liked his last answer. They were on the same page there. He wants to see if him and Jesus 
are on the same page. So remember, God's drawing people from all walks of life, even scribes, and, and there's people that he draws that, that you wouldn't think. So speak the word of God when you have a difficult situation. Lovingly speak the truth in love. You never know what God's doing. Second thought. Number two, listen, love, and live the truth. Listen, love, and live the truth. Notice what Jesus does. Verse 29, Jesus answers, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, notice Jesus, there is absolutely no hesitation at all. Man asks the question, he immediately quotes Deuteronomy chapter four, uh, excuse me, chapter six, verses four and five. And notice what he says. He starts with this phrase, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Right there in verse 29. Now, I want you to think about how important this was. Most likely, many of these men that he's standing before and probably women who are listening, devout Jews probably quoted this text that morning. See, this was the practice of Shema. And God gave them certain passages, and Moses highlighted certain of these passages that they would, that they would recite morning and night to remind them of truths. And, and I'll just give you the list of the major three that they still many recite today. Numbers chapter 15, 37 through 41. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. That's the text that Jesus is quoting right now. And then Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 21. These all texts sum up the law of God, and in it is this statement. Love the Lord your God with all your being, right? Now, these were a kind of a, a creed to the devout Jews, uh, a confession. They would memorize these, and they would be part of their prayers that they would state morning and night. So think about this. They had maybe just said that that morning before they engaged with the Lord Jesus Christ. And they proclaim Yahweh's best, basic demands, these, these texts, they, they proclaim Yahweh's basic demands upon Israel as a chosen people. There's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to live this way. And so Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter six. Now, Moses wrote these summations. It's important to understand why these are there. You have the nation of Israel who did not believe God Right? They've come up against the land, of the promised land. He brought them out of Egypt. We're studying that on Wednesday nights. He broke them free of their slavery, passed over, wiped out um, those who did not believe God, brought out those who put their faith in God and painted the blood on the doorposts, split seas, fed them from heaven, um, wiped out enemies even on their, their trail there, brought them to the door of the promised land, and then they rejected the word of God. And God sent them back into the wilderness. And everyone above 20 died. So now here we are, 20 years later, the only people that are alive in Israel are 40-year-old people and younger. And Moses writes this, Hear, O Israel. Why did he do that? Because they didn't hear the first time. They refused to listen to God. And, and before you start going, Oh, those Israelites. We sit and listen to message and the word of God, don't we? Do we hear it? And this was a challenge to him. This is why it was called a Shema. It's the word for hear, right? Hear these truths. And they were to quote these morning and night. 
to remind themselves what God had done to them. And now, think about this, the very word of God, the living word of God, is standing right in front of them with the temple in his backdrop. And he's gonna, in a few days, gonna climb onto that cross and that veil that keeps them from the presence of Almighty God is gonna be rent in two. And he's standing there saying, Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. They had stuffed their ears with their own prideful way to come to God. And here he is telling them. Notice he uses the word foremost or first place. Uh, it comes from the word protos. Uh, uh, it's, Paul used it. He says, I am the protos of sinners, the chief of sinners, the foremost of sinners. Um, a formation of this root word is used about speaking of Christ in Colossians, Hebrews, and Revelation, that he is the foremost. He is equal with the Father. He's creator. He's firstborn among all. I mean, he has, he has the right to everything the Father has. So, so that's a strong word. So Jesus says, first, here's the first, the protos of all. He says, number one, the Lord our God is one Lord. This, this was important to this young man or this scribe or whoever he was. Because look, here comes this statement, this monotheistic statement. One, uh, God is one. This scribe is living in Rome, or, or at least Rome controlled Jerusalem and all of that, right? And they are polytheistic. Their society, their government, all that they see is this polytheistic, multiple gods, Caesar's God, there's gods of lightning, there's gods of creation, there's gods of all this stuff. It was so important that he heard that from Jesus. And he was a mono, this monotheistic statement here. But Jesus continues on, doesn't he? And he continues to quote, look at verse 30. Jesus said, um, he says he's not only one, and I'm gonna come back to this in a minute, but you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now the word, the Greek word for it, when we translate with, we could, we could easily maybe English, use our English and say out of. So maybe you could read it this way, and maybe uh, I'm trying to get it to where it sinks into us. You shall love the Lord your God out of your heart, out of your soul, out of your mind, out of your strength. It's a strong phrase. It's stressing the source of love. It's, it's, the meaning is arising, that there's a, there's a love that's arising out of every area of the being. That's the greatest commands. And notice he uses, you probably can't see this in the English, but he uses a agapeo. Oh, oh, come on, Lord. You know, phileo may be an easier word for us to kind of say, yeah, you know, I'm passionate about you. <laughs> no, no. I unconditionally love you, God. That's what he's asking for here. And so this type of love can only arise from the whole person, from the center of the, the soul. Notice he's, he's talking about the whole heart. I, I got thinking about this. This is kind of the seed of the personality, right? This is who God made you. When he speaks of our heart, it's so fun to look at. You have such a great view up here. They're so, they're so different. And I know most of you, right? And you have different personalities, and God made you up uniquely to be you. And so you're to love God uniquely how he made you. From your heart, a person of who you are. And then with your whole soul, this is that inward reality of us. This is who you really are. This is the person inside of you. This is the person inside of you. That's, God said this comes from that, not some outward uh, formation that you want people to perceive you like. 
You're to love inwardly here, this, from the depth of your person, this soul, in this unique personality that God gave you. Then he says your whole mind. Well, this is how you think, how you learn, and how you reason. These are the things that you and only God know, coming from your mind. Oh, I got a little scary when I wrote that in my notes. Now you know everything in my mind, don't you, God? Good, bad, and indifferent. I want that. I want your mind. I want you to study me and know me and rightly divide my word. That's how you'll love me. And so he goes after our mind, and then his whole strength, this is the entire active body of the, of the strength of a human. It's a whole package, right? So in other words, if God is worthy of our love, he must be worthy of our entire being, right? That's what the command's saying. I'll just love you on Sunday. This is, see, so, so, so unfortunate, we're sinners and we drag our human relationships into our relationship with God. Well, my spouse only loves me at this time. Or my parents, a lot of us created our view of God through how our fathers handled us or didn't handle us. And so you distort your view of God because how you were handled outwardly by someone else. That's not God. And we have to break that. The, the, the massive transition that took place in my life at 19 years old is I finally realized God loved me. Not like my father, not like any other person in this world, that he loved me. That's where my life changed. And I started to grow. Because I now, I now knew he, he was not requiring me to muster up something. He loved me first. And now I could now start to learn by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, to love him with my whole being. And I think what this tells us is we're not to compartmentalize our love, right? I love you on Sunday, but on Monday, I gotta go out and make money, and I really don't need you around. Did that one hit a little close to home? Or, or I love you on Sunday, but I gotta go home to a difficult relationship. Mm, kitchen getting warm, right? See, we will do that. And God says, no, no. My children love me all the time with all of their being. And that's what we're working on, right? That's the imperfect love that we have here. God is helping us do that. He's desiring us to do that. Now, he says in verse 31 that the second is this. So he adds to this, and, and really is a component to qualify it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, the second brings completion to this desirous love. I love God with my whole being, and, and to know that I'm doing that, to, to give myself um, some security in some way, is that if I love God, I love that person sitting next to me. That helps me know that, that there's something happening, that my love for God is growing, because I'm forgiving people who, who maybe hurt me. Because what? Because God forgave me. See, see, that relationship with God, that love that's coming out of it, has to show itself somewhere. And so it shows itself with your spouse and your children and your coworkers and your neighbors. You, you just can't hold that in. And it shows you, he says, Scott, your growing love for Christ is starting to be seen in the way you handle people. See, this is a, a good reminder, isn't it? That Jesus knew that the love of God and the love of man are inseparable. 
John wrote it this way, 1 John 4.21, this is a commandment we have, we have from him, God, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And yet, we find in our church and many other churches, people who can't stand each other, sit on opposite sides, won't reconcile, and say, brother, friend, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Oh yeah, I prayed the prayer, I walked the aisle. I'm in the game, I'm in the camp. I got my hand stamped. Well, wait a minute. Do you forgive? If you're forgiven, you forgive. And so Jesus is showing us why this is the greatest of commands, right? This, this he's quoting exactly uh, uh, Le- Leviticus 19.18. This is an exact quote out of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. The same love as previously commanded, agape love, but the measure of that love is measured by how one loves their neighbor like they love themselves. Isn't this what I, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, 28, I think somewhere in there, talks about husbands that love their wives as they love themselves. And, and look, well, I think we did a pretty good job loving ourselves this morning. One, you're all dressed. That's very grateful you did that. Um, looks like most of your hair is combed and you're, Hopefully you scrubbed your teeth and a few things like that. I think you've been fed. I don't see anybody wasting away. I'm certainly not. Um, You did a pretty good job loving yourself this morning. You woke up thinking about yourself. I gotta go to the bathroom. I'm hungry. I don't wanna be late to church. What are the kids doing? (laughs) How is my life gonna be difficult today? What about Monday? I got these bills to pay. I got this person to meet with. I got issues going on. I got a doctor's appointment. Right? See, we really do love ourselves, don't we? Be honest. We are consumed with thinking about ourselves. It's a problem. And yet, the love of God starts to penetrate that. We start to love others because God loved us. And we start to say, Lord, help me when I get conscious in the morning not to be so consumed with myself. Help me start to rehearse things that, just like the Israel did. Oh, hero Israel, remember this. Oh, here, Scott, I died for your sins. You will stand with me for eternity, blameless and holy, never, never charged, never judged for your sins. Now go live for me. See the difference? One hand, we so selfish. God, help me begin to praise you. Preach the gospel to yourself in the mornings. This is what Jesus is after. This is what he's trying to teach. So this command depends on us to exercise equal love to that which we have we ourselves towards God and our neighbor, the one near you. And so then he adds at the end, verse 31b, there is no other command greater than these. So this is an assertion by Jesus. He asserts this into this. There, there, There's nothing that rivals these commands. No other, the Bible says, nothing can compare to this. Matthew records it this way. He says, on these two commandments depends the whole law and the prophets. Wow. Everything the Old Testament said, everything stands on love God with your whole being and love your neighbor. And this is our Lord Jesus Christ, days away from the cross, saying this. So this double love of God for, for God and, and mankind encompasses us uh, all. It's better than all the outward righteousness that they would perform. Now, look at verse 32 in our third point. The love of God surpasses duty-driven religion. I gotta move quickly here, but look at verse 32 with me. 
The scribe said to him, right, teacher. You have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else beside me. So here Jesus has made this profound statement. He's quoted scripture. He's, he's taken on these people who won't listen to him. There's one man there. He speaks the truth. And this response of the scribe is astounding. He says, right. You're right, teacher. Rightly said or well said, the text means. So the scribe, he, he reacts with, with what seems to be an open mind to this truth that Jesus has just given. He, he is the only, think about this, he's the only honest religious leader there. Everybody else has come with deception. And he recognizes that Jesus is an able teacher, calls him teacher, and he speaks the truth. You know, this is the only place in the entire gospel accounts where Jesus praises a religious leader. You would think about Nicodemus. No, 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 no. We see Nicodemus follow later after his death that he did some things, but Nicodemus goes, well, what do I do? Climb back in my mother's womb? I mean, he has no idea at that point. This is the only time Christ praises one of the religious leaders for understanding truth. This is how far the nation was away from obeying God. Notice the end of 32. He says, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. Now, we might have to pick this up later, but I want to just step into this just for a moment. The scribe, he rehearses Jesus' answer back here. He says, you've rightly stated that he is one. Now, now he's, he's back to this monotheistic view, right? These Jews in keeping these two traditions, they, they wouldn't even use the name of God often, right? They were very careful to use the name of God. So notice he says, the scribe says, um, he is, that he is one, um, he doesn't say God is one, like Jesus said, right? But he clearly is approving of Jesus' theology. And he says there's, there's no one else beside him. So, so God was not only the one, but he was the unique one. So, so they're in agreement. There is one God. Monotheistic, right? There's one God. And there's no one like him. This is what we've been studying in Exodus. This is the point of, of the plagues that are coming because God says, I'm gonna teach them who I am and that there was no one like me. And that gets repeated. Uh, we saw that Hannah repeats it. The psalmist repeated. Many of the prophets repeat that statement. But think about this. Doubtless they had heard what Jesus had been teaching about himself. Look at John chapter 10 with me. You gotta see this and we'll wrap this up and then we'll uh, tie this into next week's message. Because we wanna take time to remember the Lord's table as well. Uh, John chapter 10, verse 27. Now this is just shortly before he raises Lazarus from the dead. Doubtlessly this teaching is getting out there. Verse 27 of John 10, Jesus says, um, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. The direct sovereign statement about the ability to draw people to themselves and lead them, Right? Then he says, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. That's the kingdom, that's heaven, right? Who can do that but God? And no one snatches them out of my hand. Wow. You're, you're talking about a sovereign position that God could hold something. Who is like him? There is none beside him. Who can take people out of his hand? What a statement. And then he makes this statement, which really got their hackles up. I and the Father are one. Oh, now we got a problem. 
this guy is making himself out to be God, right? And so the Jews pick up stones in verse 31 to stone him. And Jesus says, I, show, I have showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And they say, look, they get it right. Jesus answered, the Jews answered him, for good works we are not stoning you, but for blaspheming because you being a man make yourself out to be God. They got it. They knew exactly what he was talking about. And he was right and they were wrong. So remember, he, here this scribe is saying God is one. And, and, and of course Jesus is agreeing with him. God is one. And, and that's, this is what Isaiah 42, 8 says. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. And yet, yet, Jesus in the garden, just, just a few Hours, days from now, he's going to be on his knees in the garden. He's going to say, Lord, God, Father, will you to return to the glory we shared before the foundations of the world? So if he does not share his glory with another, he has to be God. That's who they're dealing with. So the scribes worrying about this. You, you said you were one with the Father. We were thinking about stoning you not too long ago. And now you say God is one. In absolute, he is one. And so here what Jesus is not denying the Trinity, he's actually affirming it. And I want you to just think about this Trinitarian thought here. God is not three of something or one of something else. He is one divine nature and three distinct persons. So when he says God is one, he says, yeah, we're one. We're one, you cannot divide us. We share the same essence and glory. And yet we are seen and understood and lived out in three persons. And so he says this, so, so he is one divine nature, three distinct persons. He's not, he's not three of something or one of something else. He is one divine nature. And that's what he tells, um, remember if, you have, if you're still in John, just look over quickly to 14. Philip says, you know, Lord, when, when were you gonna show us the Father? In verse nine he says, look, Philip, how long have you been with me? And you say, show us the Father. If you, what? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he's not in any way denouncing the Trinity. He has not moved away from, well, I'm just the second in command. Um, I'm a little lower than him. And not in any way. He's reaffirming that great truth. Look at verse 19, John 14, 19, just dropped down a little bit. He says, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live and you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you are in me and I in you. Oh, I love that term. He's gonna rehearse that in the garden again. Basically, he is saying, I and the Father are one, Spirit included and well as that. He'll get into that later in 14 and 16. But then he says, you are in us. Now, I want you to see that, how secure you are in our heavenly Father. You are not only um, added to the family, but you are part of it. You, you reside with this holy Trinitarian God, right? I and the Father are one, and you are one with us. And so this beautiful role of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, we're right in the middle of it. You want to talk about loss of salvation? People talk about that? Well, you go down the free world, free will line long enough, you're gonna lose salvation if it's done on your own strength. But if it's done by God, he plants you in the center of the triune God. And there he keeps you for all of eternity. 
And so Jesus is no way giving up the farm here in any way. Notice he goes on to reiterate some of these truths. He who has my, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I, love, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. Right? There's, and you, I, I'm, not, I'm out of time, but you can keep reading down through that and see our position. So, so he says, look, if you love me, the results are you keep my commandments. If you don't love me, you fight and don't keep my commandments. So Christians, look, we obey God because he loves us. And there's a response from us now, a spirit-led response to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why when we wrestle with somebody who just constantly wants to fall into sin and constantly wants to reject the word of God, we fear for their eternal state. Because those who love God want to observe, be discipled, know our God and Savior. And that's what Jesus is about in this text, drawing people to himself. We're going to leave here because I'm out of time. And I knew this was a, a, a meaty passage, isn't it? Are you encouraged by this? To love God because he loves you and see the results of that with your relationships, with your family and neighbors and co? This is such good stuff. And here in the middle of this mess, these people who hate Christ, who, who, who want him to die, who want him to go away, to want Rome to judge him, all those things, there's one guy who maybe, maybe we'll see in heaven that he knows God through Jesus Christ. We'll see that. We'll look at that more in depth next week. Father, thank you for this time in the word, Lord. These are precious texts, Lord, and we're trying to do them justice as we uh, plow our way through these, Lord. But Father, as we turn to your table, to, to the work of your, finish, the, your son's finished work on the cross, Lord, this matches. We, this is a perfect time to talk about uh, the Lord's table and the, and the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ because we we're here, we're your children and we know, we, I think each believer in this room would say, Lord, I, I don't love you every minute, every hour with my whole being. And I struggle with that. And so Lord, we're gonna take now as we finish out this worship service a, a few moments and look at your finished work of your son. So that'll help us, Lord, because we have to walk out of here in a minute, Lord. We're going back out into the world and, and it's, it's tough out there at times, Lord. And so we want to be encouraged now as we hold this bread and this cup in our hands to be reminded that you did all the work. You've drawn us to yourself. And now you've freed us from our sins to love you and to love our neighbor. So remind us of that now as we turn to the table. In Jesus' name, amen.